If you're ready for freedom from the grind, then passive income from real estate investing is the best way to get you there. If you don't know where to start or what to do next, then the Rent Roll Radio Show is the best place to get you there. Join us while we discuss the best practices, strategies, and mindset you'll need and give you actionable content to get you from where you are to where you want to be. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, as always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we are joined with Dominique Gunnarsson with Gunnarsson Homes. Dominique is um, from, uh, well, originally from Los Angeles. He currently lives in Colorado, but invests in New Orleans, Louisiana. So I'm really excited to talk to her uh, and hear her story and learn more about long distance uh, investing. Um, Dominique, welcome to the show. And thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Dominique actually put on a really cool conference a couple of weeks ago in New Orleans and, um, and, and invited me to come up on stage and share our meetup. So thank you so much for, for reaching out. Uh, it was a great show. It was a great conference. I really enjoyed the speakers, um, got to got to chat with the speakers afterwards. They're going to be on the show, too. So thank you for facilitating that. that was oh, fun. nice. That's awesome. I love to hear it. So can you tell us your story? Like how... How'd you get into real estate? How'd you get from LA to New Orleans and 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 Colorado? What's going on? Tell us the story. Yeah, so um, I'm from Los Angeles, and that's kind of where I got my start in real estate. Um, I started straight out of high school, so just kind of always knew that this is the path I wanted to take and what I was going to do uh, for a career, specifically investing. Um, but I got my start just kind of in the real estate agent world. Um, I just was shadowing and working under an agent as soon as I graduated high school, um, got my license right away, and was just kind of like learning the ropes of sales and marketing and contracts and all the things, um, the basics of real estate. And um, I did that for just about two years, my first two years out of high school. And then I jumped in uh, more on the investing side. So that's when I started wholesaling for a while um, and then started my own company eventually, uh, which today is what I do with a main focus on flipping houses. Um, so yeah, it took me a couple of years to go out of state. I definitely got my roots and got started in, in California, um, but ultimately it just made a lot of sense once I was ready to start actually taking ownership of properties to go to a more affordable, uh, less competitive market. Yeah, absolutely. So why, um, why New Orleans? I mean, there's a lot of, so, yeah, it's a good question. Um, my dad lives out there. He lives uh, in Harvey, which is kind of the outskirts of New Orleans area. So honestly, it was just a really easy connection for me. Um, when I started thinking about what other markets could I go to, that was, pretty much the only one that I had a really close connection to as far as an easy place to come and visit, uh, someone I really trusted on the ground to tell me about the area and neighborhoods and stuff like that. Awesome. And so why uh, why flipping? Flipping um, is something that I always kind of had an interest in doing since I was like 15. That was kind of what I had my eyes set on. Um and kind of the more that I've gotten into real estate, um, I, I love flipping. It's it's honestly like a big passion, just transforming properties. But the more you get into real estate, you learn about other strategies and avenues. Obviously, it makes more and more sense as you go to get more passive and do rentals or just apartments and bigger deals. So the single family fix and flip stuff was kind of just 
something that I always had an interest and passion in and just kind of jumped into to get started, to get the ball, the ball rolling and get experience. Um, and most of all, just build capital. And now I'm kind of this year is like the first year where I'm right at that stage of flipping a ton and just like still growing capital and doing this full time and living off of it, but also um, starting to expand into doing more on the rental side and just other types of deals. Awesome. And where are you buying rentals? Are you buying rentals in New Orleans as well? Yeah. Oh, cool. Cool, cool. So it's so funny because I hear that story a lot. Everybody kind of starts with wholesaling and then kind of like, you know, once they, they're like comfortable with the contracts and the, the you know, doing the, the homework, they kind of graduate to flipping and then they make money flipping the buy rental. I had like, I had a hard paying job when I started in real estate. So I just started buying rentals and then I started syndicating apartment complexes. And then I realized that like, so I bought apartment complexes and 80 rental properties before I ever flipped a house. So I did it backwards. What mm-hmm. I found was the systems I had set up that created, you know, the deal flow and the available labor to fix them up and all that kind of stuff. It, it was just an easy transition. And then another another thing I like to say a lot, and, I, and I'm curious to get your feedback for, for how life's been for the last year as a real estate investor, but, you know, when I first started buying properties and I started buying rental, I just burned everything. Well, and and I always kind of like talked down or flipper or, or talked down on flipping as it was risky and it was just something I never wanted to do. And then I just built up this big rental portfolio, this big financial like foundation. And then I started flipping houses because like I could kind of bail myself out of trouble at that point, right? Like it, brand new in 2018 when I had a seven thousand dollar net worth, right? If I had borrowed money to flip a house and lost 40 grand. Like, I don't even know like what that would look like, you know, <laughs> like that's like negative bankruptcy, but now I, and I haven't lost 40 grand or any houses, but if I did, like I could just sell a rental and bail myself out. And, and I certainly did get slapped in the face, in, you know, in tw- late 2022, you know, like I think a lot of us did. So what was it like? What was it like for you? Did you, did you get hurt? Did you change your strategy? Did you see it coming? I mean, we all saw it coming, but we also all couldn't like pass up that next year. It's, it's, so tell me about it. How was, how was the transition for you? Yeah, um, definitely 2022. The first couple quarters were as strong as ever. And then we saw kind of a drop off. So I was definitely anticipating it. I didn't know to what degree or what level, um, but pretty much in like Q1 of 2022, I tightened up my buy box for what I was buying. Um, and I just didn't stray from it, even if the deal looked good or, you know, something I couldn't pass up. Um, but basically I, I was buying only properties with resale values under 200,000. So I was staying in a very safe part of the market, that first time home buyer entry level stuff on the resale. Um, and honestly, I'm pretty glad I did because I really didn't get hurt at all in 2022. Um, actually, I had a really good year overall. There was a couple of properties that um, didn't perform like amazing towards the end of the year. Um, but, you know, it was, again, still just so offset by the good first couple quarters. Um, and it's not like properties were in my price point were like, 
dropping 20% off the list price. You know, you still had a really competitive buyer pool, a strong buyer pool. A lot of people still looking in, where can I find a nice home for as cheap as possible? So that was, I think, what kept me pretty safe throughout it. Awesome. Yeah, I've got a couple of spinoff questions from that. One is, is what is your buy box? Um, It's honestly still pretty similar. I, I haven't really strayed a ton from what I said last year, just um, kind of the outskirt neighborhoods of uh, New Orleans is where I focus. So mainly on the West Bank, which is across the river from the city. Um, that's pretty much where I'm buying as far as location goes. And then price point, again, it's it's that entry level 200K and under on the resale side. Um, I'm taking on a couple of larger deals this year um, that stray a little bit from that buy box, just in a slightly higher end price point. Um, but only because the purchase price has been so low compared to the exit. Like, I feel like it has a lot of padding. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the higher end stuff does get hurt and, um, that's typically the first to go. I, I had a, I had a house appraised for 525, um, in the summer of, of 2022. And we just accepted a contract for like 430 on it. <laughs> so, Dang, that's crazy. I mean, we're still making 50 grand, but like we should have made 150, you know? Like, right. That's the kind of stuff that the market did to it. Yep. And see, those are like, to me, those are deals like, sure. Yeah. You could look at it that you lost a hundred or you made 50, you know? Yeah. And that's how my brain at the gap in the game, my brain you know, when I say I got hurt in 2022, I didn't lose money on any flips, but I didn't make all the money that I was planning on making all those flips. Right. And, and you know, I guess shame on me for counting the chickens before they hatch. But, you know, when I when I say hurt, that that's what I mean. The other question I have about your, your, your price point properties. So I certainly agree with you that like, you know, the high end stuff and, and I don't I mean, when I say high end, like. Like that was the most expensive house I've ever done. You know, I yeah. I, I personally like the two fifty to three fifty spots. Um, I what I don't like about sub two hundred, and I, what you're saying, I love it in theory, and it sounds like you've had a lot of success with it. But what I keep finding in sub two hundred is I have a really hard time getting the buyers to the closing table. Like mm-hmm. it's it gets a lot of it gets a lot of attention. It just the the buyer pools are typically have a harder time uh, getting approved for the loans, and and you know, in in the beginning of 2022, you know when we had a three percent interest rate, like it was easy to get them pushed through, but now like their debt to incomes were so tight already that we're just we have a a hard time. Like I think the last three houses that I did that were sub two, it ended up like. It ended up being on the market for like three times as long as an average, as a normal, like a 250, 350 house, because we have to go through like two two or three buyers. Because the first two like fall out, like they think their credit issue, you know, debt to income issues. So we have a hard time getting those to the closing table just to find qualifying buyers. The other problem I have with the smaller houses is like if you have a 2,000 square foot house, in a, a lower income area, right? Where the ARV is 175. And you have a 2,000 square foot house in a higher income area where the ARV is 350. The roof is going to cost the exact same amount on both of those houses. 
And it's going to be a much larger percentage of your cost for the smaller ones. So that's that's another thing that, that has always kind of freaked me out. Like, you know, spending like all of those, this, this tie ticket item, like an AC for a 2000 unit, you know what I mean? 2000 square foot house. It costs the same in a bad neighborhood as it does in a good neighborhood. So I guess the 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 caveat to that would be like the market knows, right? So you're buying those houses at a bigger discount. But I've right. just I've just had a problem fitting my rehab in and then getting the buyers to the, the closing table. Have you had any kind of issues with either one of those with those lower price point houses? Yeah, it's a really good point for sure. Um, I'll kind of address a few things I've learned on both, but for the reno stuff. Um, I think it's definitely just kind of come with trial and error about like doing some projects and seeing how quickly you can get to $80,000 or spending like a crazy amount on a $180,000 house, you know, and you think about the margins on that and you're like, dang, I had to have bought that house for like 40 or 50 K to still be making money, you know? Um, so that's like exactly what I've done. Like I just set my reno budget very realistically upfront. You know, I'm not unrealistic to say like, look, this is a lower end house. We're going to spend so much less. Like, like you're saying, the reality is the things you might spend a dollar per square foot less on like flooring or something. That's not what's breaking the bank on your reno. You know, it's the stuff that costs 10 grand per line item, you know? So Um, I've just made low offers, honestly. And like, I lost a lot of deals because of it. I know that, you know, when there's wholesalers or something that's getting pitched around and I'm not the strongest offer, like, and I've kind of just been okay with that. Um, and just taking on the deals that I know have enough, um, margin on it, those higher end or higher dollar figure rehab, um, properties when my resale is only like, somewhere between 170 and 200, like my purchase price is like 50, you know, and that's just what it is. I'm either having to go direct to seller or just really negotiate with the wholesaler or I buy it. Where do you get most of your deals? Are you, are you doing direct seller marketing or you, you get most of them from wholesalers? So almost all of my deals come from these two categories. One is either buying at foreclosure auctions And then the second half is pretty much uh, stuff that gets sent to me. So whether that's an agent or a wholesaler or someone I've done business with in the past. Awesome. So tell me more about the the foreclosure auctions. Um, Yeah. How did did you learn about it? Where do you go? What do you do? How does that work? I haven't had anybody in a number of years say they've had a lot of success with the foreclosure auctions. Yeah. They're hit or miss, honestly. Last year, I bought like probably more than 50% of my deals from foreclosure auction. Um, This year so far, I've gone every single week and I've only bought one. So this year, like 90% of my deals have come from wholesalers, agents, someone sending it to me direct. Um, So it's a hit or a miss, honestly. Like sometimes it's really good and sometimes it's not. And it literally is kind of up to luck. Like it's, how many of your competitors showed up that day and, and decided to bid on the same property you're bidding on, you know, and, and all these things, these factors that are just kind of up, up for luck. But um, do you have to go in person? Yeah. So they are live. So I send someone from my team on my behalf. Awesome. Yeah. 
So I was like, are you flying back and forth every week just to go to the auction? <laughs> no, yeah. So you could send someone um, on your behalf. But yeah, you, you kind of just research um, your parish or, or county um, and what days of the week. They usually have them every week. So you just kind of research like where the auctions are, what the rules are, because they're different for every parish. The rules change. Um, some you have to present hundred percent of the cash right then and there. Some you just need to deposit. So you really just have to do the due diligence for where you're buying and where they host it and all the rules and stuff. And then you, you know, you get the list ahead of time, you pick, pick and choose which ones you're going for and try to do as much due diligence as possible on those. You show up and kind of see what happens day of. Awesome. How are you financing your project? Everything I do is financed with private money. So I just raise it. Um, honestly, most of my lenders um, have come to me through like social media stuff I've posted or podcasts I've been on um, and just kind of reach out and ask how they're able to get involved with passive investing. Um, and so I offer essentially debt, debt funding Um just a straight up interest percentage for um, capital and then take the money and do the projects with it. Awesome. So you're not, you're not profit sharing. You're just, you're just doing them a flat. Let me ask you this. Do you do like an, an annual promissory note or are you doing like a collateralized like deal level? Like, Hey, here's the deal. Bring in all the money you get first position and then escrow the construction money for me or whatever. Like I've done both. Um, it's usually the lender's preference. Um, yeah. Probably a bigger percentage of mine are just a promissory note, um, but some like to be tied to a specific property with a mortgage. Yeah, for sure. So, how are you uh, fixing them up? What's your what is your construction crews? Are you just calling it random GCs? And then, do you have different crews? Because I know you do about ten projects simultaneously, and I usually yeah. I usually do about ten projects simultaneously. And, and I always hate it because we're always bottlenecked. Cause I've got this, I've got my crews. Like my, I just have, I have a limited, I don't hire third party, you know, construction workers or, or general contractors. I just have my guys. So when we get, you know, we can do one house in three weeks, but if we're doing 10 at a time, it drags out. So, so I'm curious who's doing your work and then do you have different crews and how do you manage the bottlenecks? Yeah. So that's probably one area where I can't save as much as someone like yourself who's there on the ground. Like there's just so much when it comes to the actual construction that I am just not able to have oversight, you know, over on the day to day. Um, so I do hire that out. Um, I have a basically one main kind of general contractor who I communicate with and he manages all my job sites and he manages all the crews. So depending on, you know, which properties we actively have crews on, on what days and what stages they're all in, he kind of keeps keeps track of sending people to the right job site um, on the right day and what material we need and when we need it for which job, all the oversight type of stuff. Um, so is he a is he a third party general contractor? Is he a direct employee? Is he no? He's a third party. Yeah. So, but you use him for all of your project, like oversight on all of your projects. Yes. So, so his compensation is 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 just the same as it would be if he was being a normal general contractor. You just pay it every time. Exactly. Yep. 
Yeah. And and how did you find that? How did you find the problem with contractors mostly is that you can't trust them. And I, I don't mean like, I don't mean that in a, like there's a lot of contractors you can trust. There's just a lot you can't. And so how did you find, how were you able to find, build a relationship with one that you could trust, one that shows up on time, one that, you know, does it on budget. And, and, is, and, and cause what I find is with third party people, if they check all of those boxes, they'd like get too big and become too expensive, right? If they're worth a the crap, they get too expensive because people are willing to pay for them because so many people aren't worth a crap. I always right. say it's, it's a budget, schedule, and quality. You've got to pick two of the three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's a good point for sure. Um, honestly, for me, it was just like trial and error. Um, you know, the guy I work with right now wasn't the first person I ever hired. It was going through a couple and figuring out what didn't work and what my expectations would now be or how they'd change moving on to hiring somebody else. Um, so it took a few. Um, and I always just started small in the beginning, just give them one job and see how it goes. But to set that expectation up front as well that like, look, we do a lot of jobs, we do a lot of business. So if you're someone that's looking to expand your business and grow to the next level, like I can bring value to you also, I can help you get there. And so I think that was a big part of it too, is finding someone who was in that boat. They weren't already huge. And I was just like another client. I was actually bringing value to what they wanted. And, you know, as long as I guess we communicated well, we worked well together, I can continue providing work and he can continue providing me, like you're saying, the things that are important, the timeline, the budget, the trust, all the things then the deals are going to keep coming. Um, and I think over time, it's just helped kind of keeping each other in check. Like I have definitely gotten bids and quotes and just hired, you know, if something came in really high, like a roof from him came in just way too high, I'll let him know. And I'll tell him that someone else is going to do that roof. Like keep this in check for next time. If you want to keep getting the jobs. Yeah. That's an excellent point. Um, that I wanted to talk about a little bit more because they all start off great. Like everybody, everybody will do the first job or two great. And then, and then like eventually their true colors come out and, and it's either one, it comes out one or two ways. One is the the work starts to slip, right? The quality starts to slip. The They, they stop coming, you know, coming in so reliably and all that. The other thing is if they truly do have a great work ethic, the the price will keep going up. So I've had, you know, Every every six months, my guy, I find my guys just bumping it, bumping it, bumping it. And I'm like, hey, we need to, you know, or, or I'm going to go get somebody else to do it. And that usually, you know, they'll usually do what they can get away with. And when you when when you kind of say, hey, look, like we're going to end up getting somebody else to do the work. All of a sudden, everybody gets back on the same page real quick. You know? Totally. Yep. Yeah. Well, cool. So um, what is what's next for you? Um, that's a great question. I think it's always, my business has always just continued to like expand and I'm just open to whatever opportunities kind of come, but in the new future, as far as like what I have planned, um, just want to keep growing as far as volume goes on the flipping side and just getting, you know, more and more properties, um, and kind of just keeping the best of the best ones as rentals. So I'm sort of, sort of starting to move into that boat this year where um, I feel like I actually have the capacity, the team, um, the capital to keep 
kind of the best deals that I'm not ready to let go of and start getting a little bit more passive in that sense. So yeah, those are, those are kind of what I have coming, but just trying to buy more deals and, and know that that'll just increase opportunity of ones to hold. Absolutely. What, uh, what is your average uh, flip? look Like what is your average profit per flip? So I usually try to target at least 15% of whatever we're into the deal for. Um, yeah. So if between purchase and reno, we're in for a hundred thousand, I want to make at least 15,000 on it. Um, oh, cool. yeah, Where, that's a, that's an interesting perspective. I've never heard anybody say they looked at it that way before. What, uh, where'd you learn that? Or was that just, you just came up with that? 15 sounds like a good number. <laughs> um, so I actually kind of dove pretty deep into this when I was wholesaling. Um, I would ask my investors who are buying from me just a ton of questions. And this is kind of how I learned and felt like I was ready to jump out and start flipping on my own. But one of the things I always looked at is like, how do you guys analyze whether it's a deal you're going to take or not? Because at the end of the day, it's usually comes down to doesn't make me enough money. And so I heard all the answers. I mean, some looked at return, some looked at a set dollar figure, some wanted it to be like a percentage, like there was just all these different answers. And so I feel like just after um, kind of analyzing what other people were doing, um, it was a good average, I guess. Um, yeah. If you broke it down to percentage, like, hey, how much are you spending to make that dollar figure that you're targeting? And it seemed to usually fall like somewhere between 10 and 15% was always like a pretty good return for somebody and anything over was gravy. Yeah. So I'll say this, it, I didn't even think about it that way until you said it, but now I'm working backwards. Like, like, and that's exactly what I did. So yeah. we do, you know, we do a seven, we want to be all in like purchase plus renovation for 70% of the ARV. And then you got to assume about 10% financing charges and about 5% realtor fees on selling it on the back end. So if you if you model it out for 30 and then you take that 15 out, you're left with 15. We're landing in the exact same spot. Right. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> I've never looked at it that way either. So that's cool. <laughs> cool, cool. Well, um, I've heard that that you're you're plugged in with uh, the bigger pockets community up there. How did that how did that relationship form? Yeah, um, kind of just naturally and organically, but um, I had just reached out to a couple people over there about just kind of what I was doing, my story and stuff, um, to just inquire about being on the podcast. And it wasn't quick by any means, but over time, um, we we ended up getting a, a show scheduled. Um, it was almost a year ago, so it was like last spring. Um, I was on the podcast, and then from there, it just kind of started opening doors. Um, they put me on another show they have called On the Market. Um, yeah, with Kathy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was on there just for like a little house flipping segment. Um, and, you know, just through doing the different podcasts and shows and stuff, you just kind of get to meet some of the other people that are involved and um, and just – just get to chat and talk about what they're doing and what I'm doing and just trading ideas. So it's grown over time, but slowly for sure. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it's hard to get, get things moving over there. Um, 
I want to hop to our radio round just to let our listeners get to know you a little bit better. A few quick questions for you. The first one is, what is your favorite book? I will say um, a book that just really changed the course of my investing, um, and it's called Raising Private Capital. It's actually a Bigger Pockets book by Matt Faircloth. Matt, yeah, yeah um, man, that that is one book for sure that just changed the course of my business majorly. Um, I wasn't using private capital before that. I didn't know what questions to ask, what paperwork to draft up, how to pitch it. And he just outlines all that stuff. And as soon as I did that, a couple of months later, I started working with my first private investor and I've never gone back. It's just scaled me in like ways I couldn't imagine. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, Matt, Matt is a sweetheart for sure. That's a great book. Um, yeah. The next question is, what's your favorite quote? Okay, I hope I don't butcher this too much, but it's a quote that basically says, uh, be willing to do what other people won't do today so that you can have what other people won't have tomorrow. Um, yeah. And I just, I feel like I'm pretty young. I'm only 25 and I got started in this at 17. So I've always kind of been like the young one in the business and just kind of looking around at my surroundings and being like, man, what are other people my age doing right now? And like, what am I sacrificing, you know, but looking ahead to be like, but where am I going to be in five, 10 years that they're not? Um, and that's really just like, honestly driven me to do most of what I've done. Yeah. You, you uh, you're a hundred percent. That, that, I think there's so many variations of that quote out there. I know Dave Ramsey has one ver one variation of it of like live like no one else today, so you can live like no one else tomorrow. I mean, it's a it's a pretty popular concept, you know, just delayed gratification. But to answer, like, like you're 25. I don't even remember when I was 25. Like, <laughs> like I mean, I might have been blacked out the entire year. You know what I mean? Like doing fun stuff that I don't like. God, I wish I was buying real estate, and I wish I was holding real estate. Stop selling yeah. stuff. <laughs> when I interviewed Jay Scott, the first time, the guy who wrote the book on uh, flipping houses, it, yeah. his my favorite quote from that interview was, uh, I regretted every house I've ever sold. <laughs> the guy who wrote the book on flipping houses regrets selling every house he ever sold. Yeah. I mean, looking back, it's like... <laughs> You see all the compounding that happens over the years, and I can only it's, imagine. Yeah, it's stupid. I, I bought houses in terrible areas that for like seventy grand that I just knew were going to be worth seventy grand twenty years from now, and three years later they're worth one hundred and fifty grand. It's like, how did that happen? <laughs> yeah, seriously. No, I'm in the same boat, and I kind of just look at it like. I recognized that that's where I was at that time. And like, I didn't have the capacity. I was young and like just trying to grow and scale and build capital. So I don't regret it, but I totally understand the concept of like, man, you just see like crazy wealth that builds, even just from a couple of years of holding something, you can't even imagine like 30 years later, what that's going right. to feel like. Right, right, right. What's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Um, I love being outdoors, anything outdoors. Uh, one of the big reasons I moved to Colorado, just be in the mountains and hike more. Um, I, I, every time I have somebody from California or Colorado on the show, I ask that question and I immediately get pissed off because they always answer the same thing. <laughs> I love outdoors. I live in this beautiful city with these beautiful trees and these beautiful mountains and these beautiful rivers. And I'm over <laughs> here, I'm over here looking at asphalt. <laughs> <laughs> 
maybe get a get an Airbnb, you know? <laughs> Dude, I, I'd love to. They're astronomically expensive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know. That is it is it is on my to-do list to buy an Airbnb in Colorado. I I was just kind of waiting for them to come down a little bit. Um yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show, Dominique. Thank you also again for putting on that great conference in New Orleans. I, I look forward to to coming every time you you uh, you know put it on, and uh, it was great meeting you. And I really look forward to keeping up with you in your journey. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This episode was brought to you by Crestworth Capital. If you're a busy professional and ready to make passive income from real estate investing, then go to CrestworthCapital.com where you'll be able to download a free copy of our ebook to help you get started today. Until next week, happy investing.